And today you've tuned into a podcast. Maybe of your own choice, maybe you're forced, but regardless, welcome to it. Tuning in makes me makes it sound like we don't know what podcasts are. Like you're just flipping through the dial, like Hey, welcome to the Lanky Guys. Like we don't I don't think that's <laughs> You can't just accidentally tune in right. to us, can you? Like no. you have to make a concerted effort and decision. To play our podcast. Well, you, what you have discovered, whether or not you've made a decision or are subjected to it by mm. a parent or a friend or <laughs> well, a relative. Well, that you can stumble into, yes. Right. Um, then uh, we are the word on the hill. Well, no, we are the lanky guys. That's right. And this podcast is the word on the hill. Absolutely it is. I'm, I am. I'm. Oh, I thought we were going to do that. <laughs> I'm Scott Powell. I'm Father Peter Mosset. And we're happy you're here. The... Uh, uh, the This Sunday is the 21st in Ordinary Time. It is, yeah, yeah. Our first reading this Sunday of Ordinary Time is coming from Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. Again, surprise, it's Isaiah. (laughs) Yeah, it is Isaiah. (laughs) Surprise. Our psalm is Psalm 138. mm, Isaiah frustrates me. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep saying it. Because this section, this is a tiny little narrative coming smack in the middle of a long list of oracles against the nations none of which you can quite exactly pin down the the chronology of. And so I had to do some uh, yeah, anyway. This is this is a great example of why people don't like Isaiah. <laughs> the story is great and the story itself is self-contained and it makes sense on its own. But, by but in my scholars, attempt to like okay, I wanted where does it fit and why is it sitting here? Okay, anyway. That's how I, that's what happens when <laughs> I look in the mirror. <laughs> You mean like, why are you here? Where do you fit? Right, exactly. <laughs> like no, in society, my family, my friends, and that's the, the human struggle. It got, it just got really real. Yeah, I know. That's I feel like we're in an after-school special. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and knowing is half the battle. So, bum 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 bum. That's the more you know. Oh, uh, the more you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, you were GI Joe. Yeah, I was. GI. All right, we've gone okay. a lot of directions here. Okay, Psalm one thirty-eight, verses one to two, two to three, six, eight, eight BC. Wow. All right, and our second reading is coming from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Okay, so then our uh, gospel is uh, Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 20. Yeah. All right, here's the thing. Oh, you, what were you about to say? Uh, no, no, just talk to me. Yes. I'm just, this is, I, I, I express my frustration to you and you thusly to me. I, I think the only thing that's frustrating me about this is that at least What's the this? first reading in the gospel, the podcast, oh. this, like literally this. Okay. The thing that's frustrating me is that the church is kind of giving giving us a softball, and there is a very clear, direct. <laughs> direct connection between the first reading and the gospel, and a narrative thread that runs through it, which is great and beautiful and a blessing. But there's part of me that's like, I wanted to work for it because I feel like the last few weeks we really had to dig. We've had to dig to and, figure this out, and because we had to dig, we discovered very interesting things. Right, and so I I tried to dig. Because there's always more than meets the eye. Right. More than meets the eye. Transformers. Um, and I don't know what I found, but I found I found some stuff. So let's talk about Isaiah 22 for a sec, shall we? Shebna. Shebna and Eliakim. So the reason I was frustrated is that um, they don't need to know my frustrations. <laughs> Isaiah 22 is coming in the middle of this kind of long section. It stretches from about chapter 20 through 27, which is this long list of, of these oracles from God against the foreign nations, some of whom are coming up and attacking and going to war with Israel. You know, some have turned their, their backs on God and the people of God and all these things. So th- th- this is a common 
um, sort of type of literary structure in the prophets. There's oftentimes these oracles to different nations. Assyria is in there. Babylon is in there. You know, all the all the the usual suspects of people who've turned <laughs> against Israel. You're right. And then kind of smack in the middle, there's this brief little narrative about something that's happening about about a time period that appears. Uh, to not be happening for a few more chapters. And so it's kind of a flash forward in a certain sense. So Shebna, I I believe, is um, the prime minister. So what in Hebrew is called the al-bayit. Al means over and bayit means household. So the person in the kingdom who is over the household, the prime minister, the one who rules in the king's absence or stead, he is the prime minister, the al-bayit of the, uh, the king Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the king. I know we've talked about him on the podcast before. He was reigning over the southern kingdom of Judah when Assyria was trying to attack and overtake Jerusalem, right? So he was the one whom, you know, for a, for a long while he was strategizing and trying to figure out, you know, Assyria who had destroyed the northern kingdom shortly before this and obliterated them. Um, there was actually a brief lull in power. It's a really interesting time period, the early 700s, where the king of Assyria had died and all of these other nations who were vassal states like the Ethiopians and the Egyptians were kind of making making runs for revolt. They're like, now is our opportunity for revolution. We don't have to be a vassal state because there's this power vacuum and the king is dead. And then another king quickly comes to power and then squelches all of these rebellions and everything. But, but there's this period where the Isra- Israelites, uh, Hezekiah, they're considering, okay, how do we get out from under the thumb? We don't want to be attacked. We don't want to endure what our northern brothers and sisters endured by getting slaughtered by these guys. What do we do? How do we strategize? Who can we make an alliance with? How can we, you know, plan and plot and and do these things to get out of what the prophets had actually made clear is a punishment potentially coming from God. And so Hezekiah is doing all these things and eventually turns, I mean, we know how the story goes. Eventually Hezekiah, when all seems lost and every other strategy to turn to everyone other than God has come to nothing. He turns to the Lord himself. He goes to the temple and he says, oh God, you've got to help us. There's a miraculous intervention on the part of God and the Assyrians don't invade. They don't destroy Jerusalem and God saves them for a time, right? So we know that kind of story. Now, in the midst of all of that, there's this guy named Shebna, who is the all, but he's, he's the prime minister, which makes him, aside from the king himself and the queen, probably the queen mother who holds the second highest position in the kingdom, he's the most important guy in the kingdom. He's the one who sort of rules and runs the day-to-day. The prime minister is the, the only way to think about this. And what Shebna did just prior to what we read here was go out and buy the most beautiful, ostentatious, wonderful, in the sight of everyone to see, tomb in the region. Shebna? Shebna did. I'm going to buy the most beautiful gravesite and tomb that I can find. And all these commentaries I read Weird. are saying, well, the reason that God is so mad at him and what we get here, it, it's, it begins by saying, thus the Lord says to Shebna, the master of the palace or the the albite, the head over the house, I will thrust you out of your office. I'll pull you down from your station and I'll summon, summon my other servant, Eliakim, and I'll put him in your place. And all these commentaries are like, well, it's because he tried to elevate himself higher than he was and and have Shebna is a, is a foreign name. It's not a Hebrew name. And right. so he's this outsider and he's tried to have a throne or a, a grave site and this monument to himself that's greater even than the king. And it's because he's so prideful and it's because he's tried to elevate himself beyond his station. That's why God is punishing him. 
And so many of these commentaries are overlooking the fact that, no, it's because Israel is facing an existential threat where they're worried that they might not make it out of this. And Hezekiah is trying to rally the people and say, we must trust that God will bring us out of this mess because God is bigger than this. And when the king's right-hand man goes and hews for himself the most beautiful grave site in the land, it doesn't inspire the most confidence in the way the kingdom is going. Right. Right. It's like it's like, like oh no, it's like gear up for death, people. I mean, like right. Or he's not saying that, but it's and actually archaeologists have discovered what they think where this tomb actually might have been, and it's literally on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem, where literally everybody can see it. And they're watching this construction happening for the prime minister's grave as the king is like, no, God is going to save us and protect us. Don't be afraid. And you're like, yeah, maybe I should be afraid, which is um, the the backstory. I mean, I just think that's very easily applicable to this particular age right here. (laughs) Try not not to put too fine a point on it. Right. I mean, like like you look and you say, okay, are we going to make it out? And you're like... Put on your seatbelts because we're all going to die. Yeah. Right. Versus saying like, my brother just called me and he's like, what do you have? What are you hoping for? What are you looking forward to? Hmm. And it was just like, and it was just good because like, because I'm wrapped up in so much analysis of what's happening and like, and I'm, and I'm wrapped up in, in, in an activity to try to draw souls. But like, but as a pastor, as a father, like I'm worried that people aren't going to come back to church and that they're going to abandon their faith. And like, so in a certain sense, what we're prepping for is for failure. At least I am like, there's a mental part of me as we're doing all of our outreach events at CU, the University of Colorado, when a whole bunch of students are not showing back up and a lot of people seem to be doing it online and the streets are not crowded like they usually are. And it, it like things are off and we're planning for these outreach events and how do we reach out to people? And I think there's a part of me that's just, what are we going to do when it fails? Or what are we going to do when they don't show up? Or what are we going to do when they shut down the university? You know, and, and all those things might happen, but and that's right. why you kind of inspired me with what your brother said is I'm not thinking. And, and even in my personal life, I was telling you, like we're, you know, the school district is, is shut down for a time. We're like, okay, how are we gonna? How are we going to watch my kids fail to progress in the way that they're supposed to progress at school? How are we gonna watch them backslide? How are we gonna have the fights every single day about being on the tablet or being on the Chromebook and fighting over the class they're supposed to be? At? Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm just always sort of preparing for the worst. And so maybe, and I actually hadn't even read it this way, but maybe Shebna is me. And as we're in this moment of of darkness and a lot of people are falling into despair and we don't know the way out of all of these different things and we're fighting and we're at each other's throats and, you know, there's all this stuff. I'm just constantly like, okay, well, I know next week's going to stink and I know I'm going to have this fight and I'm not, I'm not anticipating that God is going to bless it. I'm anticipating that there's, there's nothing wrong with anticipating the cross. The saints actually tell us it's probably better to anticipate the cross. And on those few days when you don't receive the cross, you can rejoice even extra. So I'm not saying that, but I, I don't know if I have the hope that these readings are calling me to have that says, do you actually believe that God can help your children learn this semester? Do you believe that God can help your kids actually have a really fruitful education in the next month and a half before the school district decides what they do. You know what I mean? Right. Do you actually believe that you can have success in your New Testament class, even though most students are taking it over Zoom, which I don't like doing things that way? Or am I actually doing the opposite and just sort of anticipating, okay, either triage, 
which is fine. Like, all right, we're just going to get through. We're just going to put our heads down and just get it, get through it and do the things we have to do. And I know they're not going to be that great and blah, blah, blah. Or am I thinking, you know what? This is the moment that God can, can blow it up and totally bless these things. Even despite all the stuff, I don't know. I'm now I'm preaching to myself. Sorry. No, no. I mean, it's like I listen to you, and it's it's, it's just it's just the question: Are you building the tomb in the sight of everyone, or <sighs> right? Uh, well, I guess I just did on the podcast. Right, <laughs> oh, right. You're, you're, Sorry, everybody. No, no. Like, like, look, look how you know uh, we're going to gloriously glo- go out, which is like, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know. Okay, this is this is our telos. Yeah. Like when you, especially when you spend all spend all your energy and your money and your funds. And versus, like, th- there's a prophetic witness to that versus of of that tomb. There's a hugely prophetic witness, and it's also showing you where he's putting all of the value in his world, right? Which is not in God in any way. It's in his. It's not even in his death and his his idea of uh, desolation that everything is lost. It's okay. There's a moment of darkness. There's a moment of desolation. I am going to glory myself. Mm. I don't believe God's going to get us out of this. And if God's not getting us out of this, I'm going to use the opportunity to glorify myself, Mm. which I mean, I do think that also speaks to our times. Right. And as you know, with all the shouting and yelling and, and political maneuvering and, and social media ing and Twittering, you know, all the stuff we all kind of feel have this, this ethos of things are dark and everything is lost. And we all just want to kind of glorify ourselves and show mm-hmm. how amazing we are, which is, this is Shebna, man. Right. And I've written off Shebna for so long. And now I'm, I've never seen myself so starkly in Shebna, which is a bummer. <laughs> then, then, then Eliakim. And Eliakim. Then how does Eliakim contrast him? I don't actually, well, I, we, we, part, of the, part of the frustration about these readings for me is that we don't know much else about these guys. Like we're not given a whole lot So he lot doesn't more glorify himself? No, I think he well, uh, the only thing I do know about Eliakim, who is then put in the place. So, so Shebna is taken out of that position. It's stripped from him. Eliakim is put in his place. And this is where the important theological piece for the, the ecclesial life of the church. God says, I will clothe him, Eliakim that is, son of Hilkiah, with your robe. I'll gird him with your sash. I wish somebody would give me a sash. Dude, but I can put that aside. Dude, I mean... Here he comes, Mr. <laughs> Louisville. I could be uh, a the, permanent a permanent deacon. Yeah, the stole kind of immortality, of dude. Sort of a stash, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll give him your authority, and he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I'll place the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. When he opens, none will shut. When he shuts, none will open. I'll fix him like a sure peg. I'll place him a place of honor for his family. So this is where... Eliakim receives what's because the, they're what's taken. the peg in the sure spot is that, like all I can think of is he's like, gonna hold it together like the you're a woodworker man like the peg oh, that you put in to like I'll, hold everything in place right oh for some that's reason how I, that's how I read yeah it. All, all, for some reason all I could imagine having watched that free solo movie was what's his buckets oh, with like on the pegboard <laughs> Alex like, Honnold Alex Honnold you know people have mistaken me for Alex Honnold but at different times it's because of we'll your your totally amazing because I'm built buff like a, um, <laughs> length. So, yeah. so no, anyway, anyway, so no, I, I just I just kept on thinking about it. No, like the peg, of, you know, it's it's a it's a tenon. It's like yeah, that's how I that's what I think. Ooh, I like that. Which again, us. what's Shebna not being? He's not being the peg that's holding the kingdom in place because he's very visible and people are looking to him, and being like, oh, geez, well he's he's not going to hold us together. Um, but the thing, so so the key to the the keys to the kingdom, and this of course is the prefigurement of what what Peter receives later on, which is where we're going with all this. Um, what was I going to say about that? Oh, I was going to say the only other place that I'm aware of that Eliakim shows up is later on in Isaiah when 
Hezekiah rallies and he's like, we're going to stand up and we're going to stand firm because God is our God. It's Eliakim that receives the messages from Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, taunting, mocking, jeering at Jerusalem and the southern kingdom saying, you guys are nothing. Your God is worthless. We are going to annihilate you. Eliakim is the one who receives those messages and takes them back to the king. So in a certain sense, I mean, it, which is kind of a cool image of being the sure peg. He is taking the insults and the threats and the jeers of the world and turning to his king with them, mm. receiving all of this stuff and saying, okay, here's what the world says. Here's the messages I've received. What are we going to do about it, O king? Gosh, talk which, about There's something stress. ecclesial. But think of the ecclesial uh, analogy there. Mm, Not yeah. to get ahead of ourselves. No, no, I like that. I but that's the that's only like... other place I'm aware of that Eliakim is is mentioned later on. He might be. He might show up in Second Kings as well. But I have to look. Wow. So, so it, it, talk about a different, two different reactions. One, I'm yes. going to glorify myself. The other one, which is I'm going to actually bear a burden. Yeah, I'm going to bear time. a burden and, and a cross and actually bring it back to the king. Yeah, which is the right thing to do. Which is the right thing to do which as the prime minister. Your, because as prime minister. You go to the king. Right. Because it's not about you. Right. You were the one that gets it done. Get the job done. Right. Which is important. Which takes us into the psalm, I think. Okay. Lord, love is it, your, your love is eternal. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Yeah. So Psalm 138, one thing I'll say about Psalm 138, it's, um, it's called the Psalm of David. That's one of its titles. So presumably this was a psalm either written by or in the spirit, at least, of David. Basically, it's understood to be a psalm of, of praise from the kingdom, from the king, for God having saved them from some foe or some enemy. So it's the other end of this story. So this is the response to everything we're looking at here. And this is, you know, after you've come out of the muck and the darkness and the terror of like, what do I do? All is lost. Do I glorify myself? Do I hide in a cave? Do I just let it all, you know, what do I do? This is the other side where in the voice of the king, it says, no, I'm giving thanks to you because you pulled us out of it. Yep. It wasn't about me. It never was about me. It's always about you. And I love what it says here because we just talked about this a few weeks ago. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all of my heart. And I kept thinking back to uh, when we talked about, we had our conversation of the idea of the heart in, in the Hebrew sense. And I quoted the catechism, remember, when it talks about the levav. Levav is not, not emotionalism, not in a, the heart in the sense of like, oh, I feel really emotional about these things. It's not a Hallmark Channel movie, right? It's, it's the heart in the sense of my will, where I decide and choose right and wrong, where I choose who I'm going to follow. It, it's, it's more akin to the will, I suppose, right? And that's what the catechism talks about, the heart. So I'm giving thanks to you, God, not just with my emotions, because I'm so happy that I'm out of this mess. I give thanks to you with all of my heart. I will myself to give thanks to you, because even if I'm still in the midst of whatever challenge this is, I will still, with my entire will and my mind, make the decision to give thanks to you. Because you can read something like this and be like, oh, well, traditionally, this is a psalm, you know, after they'd won some battle. So everybody has the happy emotions and the warm fuzzies. And it's really easy to give thanks to God when you got the warm fuzzies. But levav is not about warm fuzzies. It's about willing a decision, saying, when will you give thanks to God? Shebna, when will you give thanks to God? I give thanks to God that you've put me, says Shebna, well, maybe should have said Shebna, that you've put me in this dark moment right now where I don't know what to do and I don't see a way out of it and everyone's looking at me. And I thank you, God, even though I don't feel the warm, happy fuzzies, but I know that you have something bigger than me and I know you have a plan that's outside of me and I thank you for putting me in this time. 
how do you and I, how do the rest of all of us living in this weird moment in history say, God, everybody's at each other's throats. There is pandemic. There's all this stuff. There's there's political unrest, elections and civil unrest and struggle and agendas. But do we wake up every morning and saying, God, I'm going to will myself to thank you for letting me Mm. be born in Mm. this time. Because maybe these are the times that perhaps we're going to have the most saints of modern history. Because these are dark times and these are times where, honest to goodness, maybe it doesn't take that much because of how emotional and angry and terrified and fear-filled everyone is just to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to thank God. And it takes an act of the will to do that. Because, again, you don't get the warm, fuzzy feelings every morning. No. But I want to be the kind of person who wakes up every morning and says, thank you for letting me be born and uh, letting me be alive in 2020. Yeah. I'm, because maybe uh, I was made for such a moment as this. I like this line from the Psalms for that. When I called, you answered me. You mm-hmm. built up strength within me. Yeah. Because like, that's ultimately like where there's a lot of things whittling at our strength. Yes. That's actually, yeah, the, that's, that's, it. that's the thing that, that I find so hard is that these and things... And there was for Shebna too. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic today towards Shebna because can you imagine the pressure? Oh, yes, and I can imagine the pressure. Yeah. And everybody's looking to you. Everybody's wanting something from you. Everybody's criticizing you. I mean, the king is a little bit, um, what, is, what is the word? Uh, insulated because he's the king, right? But the prime minister, that's the punching bag. That's the one that you go after, right? Yes, and I I've, know. Again, I've never really appreciated the weight that Shebna must have felt. Like, ugh. I, I, anyway, sorry. You know, it's you. really interesting because it's like wh- what this is teaching me. Some, one of my friends was saying to me that um, you got to watch your language right now. Like, because the, the words that we use mm-hmm. actually manifest a reality. Like, oh, yes. this is killing me. Oh, I just, I would rather die. Oh, like, like words, like, like this is the, this is the kind of We call of that Shebnaing. Shebnaing. <laughs> right. It's like, it's, it's, it's right? like, actually we have Is that be, the connection you intended? Yes. Okay. Cause I, that's a good connection. No, that's, that's exa- really good. It's exactly like, like that's how really are good. we, because I, cause I was being dramatic and. But we all want to broadcast to the world that man, it's killing me. Like we, it's right. so, we want. And it's just, it's something we say, it's a colloquialism, but we all want everybody to know, right? Right. We all want to vomit our our stuff on social media and be like, can you believe how it's, I'm just dying. These are the hardest things. We're uh, hewing a tomb for ourselves. Right. Aren't we? Right. Really. But but not necessarily in stone, but in words. But we're manifesting it for all people to see. Right. (sighs) Wow. That's really powerful. Yeah, I know. That's a great connect. I see there's more here than meets the yeah. end. That was good. Well, that was a great connection. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's that's what that's actually going to stick with me for a long time because yeah. it was still <laughs> Shemna was still actually. a little a little abstract for me. Right, hewing a tomb. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, I seriously, that's really getting me right now as I think about it. Like I'm hewing a little tomb for myself every time. I'm like, oh, this is killing me, or some equivalent of it. Right, right. right. Like what rather than the, but which is not to whitewash everything and be like, oh, everything's fine. It's all you know. But oftentimes it comes out in the experience of it on the other side is like, no, be with me in this. Right. Walk with me in right. the cross. Mary Magdalene this. Yeah. You know, John this. Yeah, right. You know, like, right. like it's okay to be in the cross. It's okay, mm. it's okay to feel these things. Yeah. 
Um, uh, but what we don't want to do is we don't want to start bringing language around stuff to build a tomb right. rather than to right. yes. uh, be the peg, which the peg, why is the peg there? It's to, it, because it endures the stresses of all the different things coming together yeah. to hold them together yes. so that the, the, what is supposed to happen happens. Yeah. Which is yeah. hard. I don't want stress. And sometimes, as we learn, the peg breaks, as Shebna did, right? right. And God's going to fix it. Even if that happens, God will step in and he'll reconcile it. Do you know that one of my favorite bands from the 80s and 90s is Peg Boy? I did not know that. Yeah, like seriously, some of the best Chicago punk that anybody could actually bring around. So, oh, Southside Chicago punk. Yeah, man. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just making some <laughs> So up. Are, are, this brings us into Romans. It does. It, I mean, it perfectly brings us into yeah. Romans. And before we read what Romans says, I just want to remind everyone of the context, which we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Um well, Rome, the broader context is this dispute between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, uh, over you know who's better, who holds you know who should hold what role, who should be in which place, and that launched Paul into what I actually think is the climax of the whole letter, which is his discussion on what about the Jewish people who have rejected the Messiah, who have not accepted the Messiah? What of them? Where, where do they fit into God's plan? Have we forgotten them? Should we scoff at them, which people in Rome clearly are because of how Paul responds to it? And he says, no, I weep over them. We don't scoff at them because how could they miss it? What fools? I weep over my brethren who have rejected the Messiah. And then he goes on to say, as we talked about last week, I think, we have no idea what God can actually use, even someone's rejection of his plan for. Because the persecution and that rejection actually is what brought Paul to the churches to which he preached and brought us all of these letters. And maybe Paul says it was partially to make my brethren jealous of being, you know, with all these Gentiles and outsiders. Maybe God will work it for the good. And who knows, you know, if if the rejection of so many of these people has brought the gospel to the ends of the earth, imagine what their acceptance could do, which is what leads Paul into his concluding lines in this section where he says, oh, the depth. So you got to read it with that context. And then he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways for who has known the mind of God, who has been his counselor or who has paid the Lord anything or given the Lord anything that he may be repaid. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's how you know we finished the section. But you can see that as just like a nice little pious adage. Like, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of God. How inscrutable his judgments. God is so much bigger than us and so outside of our ways. But it change, it's not a nice, it's not like a, a holy card or like a, it's not a, a picture of <laughs> this, image of like a pastel colored picture of like a sunset in a field with sheep with like a Bible verse on it that you'd see in like some evangelicals bathroom or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, it I, looks I was actually like pi- picturing a, a sunset over the beach yes, w- yes. with like the kind of weird 1980s printing yes. color. <laughs> yes. That's next to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. Like, yeah. You could buy it at, at Cornerstone bookstore or something, but, um, that's that's kind of what you could make of this. We're probably taking this too far. But Paul is saying what he just said, not as a nice sunset pastel painting adage. Actually, it's but so funny. Out of, as you read it, out of this profound contemplation of of looking and and seeing how um, how this is all working, it's almost like he gets to experience the glory. Uh, but, yes. But we'll finish your sentence then. Well, just uh, yes, that's true. I mean, he, so 
Yes, in the sense that he's seeing this work. He's seeing the the nations right. accept the gospel. He's seeing these churches be built, even though they might be at each other's throats at the moment. Right. But he's also speaking this out of, that's cool, but my family has rejected me. And my people do not understand what I do now. And I've been run out of town and dishonored and disgraced and hated and shamed because I have seen what is true and Everyone who I loved and respected and raised me and I worked with have rejected what I know to be true and thus rejected me Hmm. and how I wish they would see it, how I wish they would come back. I don't think Paul wanted to go out to all of these other churches, establish these churches out in the Mediterranean. I think he wanted to be a Jewish teacher and he's been put somewhere else. And in that he's saying... Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God is inscrutable judgments and unsearchable as ways. I don't know why my family has rejected the Messiah. I don't know why my people have rejected me and why I've been brought to shame and dishonored and cast out so that I have to be stuck with these schmoes who I don't necessarily want to be with. But God's ways are bigger than mine. And I trust and I know, I know that from him and through him and for him are all things to be to him be the glory forever. That is, as the psalm says, giving thanks to the Lord with all of his levav. Right. Saying, this is my experience. This is where I'm living right now. But I know and I trust and I will make an act of the will to trust and thank God for his unsearchable and unscrutable ways because I know what he has the power to do. So I will make that act of the will in the midst of Paul's own darkness. Yeah. Which, which is why it's not a holy card image. It's not it's not a pastel painting in a bathroom. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And and the and, and because of of how, how much it, how costly it is, yeah. he gives glory. It's almost like I can see um uh, you know uh, Eliakim in and in him oh. in the same position Ooh. that he actually has to go out Ooh. and experience what the conflicts and the struggles and the the tensions between different peoples and the nations and actually be a peg to affix the 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 wow. people of God mm. to the, the the grafting point because yeah. it's like they're being grafted onto the vine and yeah, and yeah, like yeah, right. and you right. actually need which to he hold, just talked about a chapter and a half ago right and you need to hold it there mm. And so as, as he's actually doing this, he's trying to like say like, I've seen this and it's costly and yeah. it is hard and everything. But then and who can give his counselor? He's like, because if I would have counseled the Lord, it wouldn't have we, been this, we, we would not <laughs> we have be been going this way. Yeah. And th- that's like yeah. how I feel right now, right? Like I, yeah. I would not choose any of this at all for right. any reason at all ever. Right. And right. yet we've been asked to be pegs and to participate in this and to hold right. and to endure the tensions of what are what's going on, and and but yet still not hold up a tomb, but hold up the glory of the Lord. And as you say, Paul's already seeing fruit. It might not have been the fruit that he wanted. Right. It wasn't the fruit that you know where his heart might have desired. I don't know, but he's still. But he is actually seeing the other side of this. I mean, the, is, the, the, uh, just because it's positioned in this particular way and it's going to lead this into the gospel, mm. I wonder if if his grand desire was actually to be in the position of the bishop of Rome, Peter's position to be the rock. I mean, it, 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 would, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't be far for me to actually say, wow, that would be a big desire. Can't wait till Peter dies and I can go clean up his mess. <laughs> <laughs> but, not, but you could kind of, but in, you could spin that in a very negative sense, but also he is 
he is the 13th apostle. There's no reason theoretically that he couldn't have been a pope. Right. Maybe he was... (laughs) I don't know what his relationship with Peter was like. I know there was deference and I know he respected Peter because he calls him out in Galatians and says, hey, you have a huge job and you have to get your act together. So he has a deference to Peter's position. But you always, I wonder if he was kind of like an Eliakim, like wondering like, well, maybe I can't wait to get that key placed on my shoulder that yep. I can really clean things up. Yep. Maybe not. That's what I would have been thinking. I know that leads us into that does lead us in. into Matthew, where they're going up to Caesarea Philippi, and yeah. we've got the the keys, which is in relationship to the all by yeet and the uh-huh. uh, from the first reading, and like the keys of the kingdom of heaven and versus keys of the kingdom, you know? Yeah, and um, which is the which is the painfully obvious connection. So we it, have it is, to yes, we just have to kind of lay it out in the beginning. Well, let's uh, let's set the stage first. So they go up to Caesarea Philippi, right? Caesarea Philippi was was named after. Uh, Caesarea, this region up in the, it was like in the northeast portion of the Holy Land. Um, it was given by by Caesar to um, Herod the Great, who had a son named Philip, who he gave this territory to. And so Philip named after self, after himself. He's like, it's Philip's Caesarea now. What's up? Right. <laughs> so it's, it's Philip's Caesarea, um, which had, uh, the only thing it was really known for at the time, it had this massive um, temple. Two, actually, two, two things that it's known for. It's one of the headwaters of the Jordan. Yes, right, 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 right. Yep. And yep. then it has a massive temple. To Pan, I want to say it was to Pan. It's Pan, Pan, Pan the because, Greek god Pan. Yep. Which was a little bit defunct at at one point that people weren't really using it anymore. And so one of the things that happened is so back uh, when when the Romans and the Greeks were kind of coming to a head of of whose empire is this going to be, and it began to transition toward the Roman Empire when Mark Antony and you know was was killed and Cleopatra. That whole story. Um, everyone was sort of hedging their bets on who would be the next leader of the region. And I believe Herod the Great hedged his bets on the wrong guy. He put his backing behind Mark Antony. And so when Rome was victorious in the end, he was like, oh, geez, that wasn't the best thing to do. So what he did was began, he, he built a, a temple. He actually took over the temple to Pan and made it a temple to Caesar, to Julius Caesar, whose son was Augustus, right? Yep. And um not Orange Julius Caesar. Not Orange Julius, but Julius yeah, Caesar. Caesar. Yep. And uh, I think it was shortly before that when Caesar Augustus had had pretty recently come to power as the story goes. And I've told I'm sure I've told this story to you before. Yeah. But Caesar Augustus went before the Roman Senate and he was frustrated that their mythologies were sort of dying out and people weren't um they were getting a little bit too political and not spiritual enough. I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. But mm. he was, uh, he wanted, you know, the religions and, and these gods to kind of be resurrected in a certain sense. And so he asked the Roman Senate to declare his um, adopted father, Julius Caesar, to be a god. Let's make him a deity. Like he made this, he brought us Rome. Like we should honor that. To which the Roman Senate was very frustrated because they were realists and they didn't want to deal with all that stuff. But they said, well, if we say no, he'll probably put us to death. If we say yes, eh, I mean, what, it's not that big of a deal. We'll add another god to the pantheon, right? Yep. And so he, yes, they passed a law to make Julius Caesar a deity, to which Caesar Augustus quickly stood up and said, okay, now bow down to me because I'm the son of God. What up now? So he declared himself the son of God, or rather he had himself declared the son of God. And the Herod family, including Philip, I believe, who was sort of still in the doghouse from backing the Greeks, said, okay, well, we will build this temple in honor of Julius and his son, Augustus. 
So we'll, we'll recast this huge temple that was built hewn into the side of a cliff. We'll make it for Julius the God and Augustus his son, and we will give it a place of honor for them, which I think has got to be the reason that Jesus takes the apostles up there for this. It's another offsite. Well, it's not quite an offsite. They're still in the territory, <laughs> but it's a field trip, yeah. which I stole from a, a reader comment this week. Um, so they take trip. a field trip up there, and, um, th- and then he goes the first public opinion poll, right? The, the, the poll series. <laughs> who do like, people so who, say that I am? They right. did a doodle poll. And they're like, 20% say that you're Elijah, and like 35% say Jeremiah, maybe. And, you know, they, <laughs> they kind of go through this thing. Because th- there's real poll. I mean, we, we cannot take the political reality out of this, though, because Jesus is a king. And he's not just a metaphorical king or some abstraction of a king. He's a king, which means he has earthly rule. He rules in heaven, but he also rules earth. And that is people. And there are cities, and th- th- that's a real political reality. And so, yeah, public opinion poll doesn't isn't that out of the question. And and they're saying, okay, well, people say this, and these guys are saying this. Some people think you're this, like they've seen what you said, and you kind of sound like Jeremiah, but you worked some miracles, like Elijah, and everyone's really curious. And he's like, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then it's Peter, of course, who speaks up, and he says, you are the Christ, the Christos, which means the King. It's a political word, the Son of the Living God which is significant because they're literally standing in the shadow of a temple built to a Christos, a Christ, who is the son of a dead God, which is not insignificant, right? They're literally in the shadow of a giant rock, which holds the temple to a dead, to the son of a dead God, Julius Caesar. Mm. And so when Peter's, I, I got to think, maybe I'm reading too much in, but I've got to think when Peter says, yeah, you're actually the Christ, which is a statement that alone could get him put to death. That is an act of treason to say anyone except for Caesar Augustus is the Christos. He says, you're the, I wonder if he whispered it like, no, you're the Christ. Because <laughs> you if you, you'd be put to death immediately. Well, well, by the way, the temple is a huge wall, which would have amplified words. Absolutely actually. right. Like, like you, you go and stand there and, and, and by the way, there was actually a gate into the netherworld of which people would do child sacrifice. That's significant for what comes next. Um, uh, that, <laughs> sorry to keep moving from that. Um, but yeah, the son of the living guy. I, but, but, I think yeah, Peter... but, but, but he was, I mean, like, how did he say it? I mean, I, I think when I, when I look at Peter, I think he probably was bold. They were probably camping there, but I actually look and make the connection. I, I hope he was. He probably was. So this is really interesting because the, the temple is in fact an elaborate tomb. Absolutely. Uh, th- that was where I was going next. It right. absolutely it, is. Like, because the living God versus the dead. So it's death versus elaborate life. tomb. Right. A hugely elaborate tomb. Which Peter is, I think, explicitly choosing against. He's making a constant, conscious decision with his levav to choose a living God, to not choose the God of a tomb. Right. To but choose a God who is alive in front of him. Because they used to do child sacrifice for pan. So you literally have, right. You, right. For, for what? For crops? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you actually have the choice. And, and this yeah, is actually- a fertility God, I believe, yeah. And what does Jesus say immediately? You are the rock. Right. Which they're standing in the shadow of a giant Gigantic. temple built into a rock. Right. He says, now I'm going to build my temple on a different rock. You, Rocky. And again, he gives him a name that's not a name. No one was named Rock. No one was named Peter in these times. It's like naming someone Chair. Literally, like it's not a thing. So everybody, but here's, I I do have one new, it's not an insight really, but it's a a reflection. And I'll I'll do it quick because this is the only thing I hadn't really seen or thought about before. Okay. 
when Peter says this, so Peter, I hope he says it with confidence. Like, no, like I'm bought in. I'm sold out to this. I see it. I'm not going to choose the tomb. I'm going to choose the living God. Um, you know, you are the rock, the gates of hell, the gates of the netherworld, which you mentioned the gates and then which this child sacrifice, death, 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 death. We're choosing life, 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 life. We're choosing hope. We're choosing to make uh, this, this act of our will and our levav to give ourselves to you, or at least Peter is. Um, and then he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples to tell no one he was the Christ because they'll all get put to death prematurely if they do. Right. So, because it's that big of a deal. Now I do argue and then apologists will argue up and down that the keys to the kingdom was a known image. People knew that the prime minister or the Albaid held the keys. However, so I think that was a thing. But it can't be denied that I believe the only place in the scriptures that it is mentioned is here in Matthew 16 and then in Isaiah 22. They're the only times that they're mentioned by name. I do think the tradition holds that that they were known. But the way that Jesus says this, yes, the keys to the kingdom, that was a thing. But he quotes verbatim what Isaiah says, which, again, everyone knew the concept But Jesus wants them thinking about Isaiah 22, I will argue, because he quotes Isaiah 22 verbatim with the whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, bound bound in heaven. Again, everyone knew the concept, but he quotes it word for word, which means that if Peter actually does see what's happening to him, and I get that he probably doesn't see the full spiritual weight of what's being handed to him. I think he sees the political reality of oh my gosh, you're asking me to be the prime minister in this kingdom that is being built. Wow. But I also wonder then with the very clear reference to Isaiah 22 and knowing these guys would have known their scripture because that's how you're raised in the Jewish world. I wonder if there would have been a pang of fear in that for Peter. Not just because, oh wow, this is a really big weight. Because it but sits he's in quoting, the midst of all of those things that you're talking about. He's about, quoting about. a story about someone who was the prime minister who had it ripped away from him because he chose death. And what Jesus quotes is not just, hey, congratulations, you won the prize. Like, you get to be prime minister. It's, I'm going to quote for you the one place where we see your position being ripped away from someone because they chose not to put their faith in God and give to someone else. So, Peter, feel the weight of what you're being asked. And I wonder if that's why everyone is sort of brought to silence afterwards. Because I've always seen it as like, congratulations, like, oh, this is really cool. You're yeah. finally forming your kingdom. You're appointing your staff. Your chief of staff is there. Like, you know what I mean? Yep. But the weight behind that particular quote, which is the only other place that this actually shows up, I, I don't think that, I hope it wasn't lost on Peter and the apostles. who are like, oh, that's a dark story. That's not a happy story you're quoting. Well, oh, listen, but listen to this. The, what's the very next thing he says in chapter 16? Be quiet. From, from that time, Jesus oh, yeah. began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things and the elders and chief priests, yeah. and be killed and then be raised. And then be raised. So he's saying, I'm not erected. This temple is is the temple to the living. Like, I am the temple. He's actually establishing. And there a, will be a tomb, and there will but be do a not tomb. put your faith in it. No. Tomb is coming, the tomb. do not trust in that tomb like Shebna trusted in the tomb. Right. To, as In this prophetic way. In this prophetic way, yeah. Yeah. 
which there's something complex and, and contemplative in yeah. and how do you experience like these two because of the context of Shebna and Eliakim which we hear the keys to the kingdom and those of us who are formed in the Catholic worldview our context is the papacy and well, yeah, Peter I mean, and Caesarea Philippi the Vatican flag has keys. Yeah, has keys on it but we have a context the only context the apostles had was the story of Shebna and Eliakim for that, for that quote. And yes. then the concept, of course, of the keys, which tells me they're hearing something different than the ecclesiology that I'm hearing, which mm. is a developed, beautiful, established, passed on ecclesiology. They're hearing, do not put your faith in that tomb like that guy did, or there will be dire consequences, mm. both for you and for the kingdom. Which adds a weight. I don't know. Right. And I'm not trying to be right. dark. I don't want to end on a note of darkness because no, no, no. I don't think it's that. Well, well it, this it's is of where you put in your faith. He says, "I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise." Right. So, right. so what, yes. what's happening is he's. T it's almost like he's taking Shebna and Eliakim, collapsing them together, and then going yeah. through it in a yeah. whole other way. That's like that takes yes. all of those concepts and the story fulfills both sides of it and then in, enhances it to the glory of God in a yes. way that is saying like, do you understand that this is so complex? Like what, what, um, what Paul was experiencing yes. is that this is bigger and weirder and incorporates things in a way that you could have never. And that's why it's glory. And it's like, he's taking the imagery of, of all that Shebna's tomb was, yes. was which was a giving into fear, a, a, uh, and allowing the spirit of fear and the spirit of arrogance, God is not arrogance temerity. and God is temerity and the idea that God is not going to show up for me. It is taking all of that. Jesus taking all that upon himself and then exposing that tomb for the worthlessness that it is. It is mm. empty. It is vacant. It is void. It is nothing. That's what he does. He takes all of what Shebna's tomb represented, pride, arrogance, temerity, uh, fear, hopelessness, helplessness, and he breaks open the rock, the wall, the gate, and he exposes it for the void that it is. That's what our readings are, I think, maybe pointing us toward, at least this year. Whoa. Well, that's, there's, there, there is, hey, there was some stuff in here. There was some stuff. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. We love that you uh, join and you uh, listen to the scriptures. I've been doing, you know, I've been doing study uh, outside of the out of the uh, outside of the podcast in the scriptures recently. That's the best. And it's been really, really good. That's the best. I, I've been actually going through the Gospel of John. It's really nice. Oh, John. John's hard. I'm trying to memorize the structure. Really? Yeah. You love John. John's your boy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Well, you know love if he Mark, is. but John, John's, John, John reminds me of you. Well, thanks. But you, you guys remind us of, well, we, we don't know because we only get brief <laughs> glimpses of you. So, ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So, God bless you. Um, you guys are wonderful. Um, keep Very, the faith. Two quick shout outs. Yep. Um, one to Patty Quinn because it is the feast of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, as we record, she, and she knows why. Uh, and the second one is to um, Maggie Potler, who's getting married. Her her dad re reached out and uh, wanted a quick shout out for Maggie, who's oh. getting married sometime very soon. So congratulations to to you guys. Yeah, God bless you all. All right, talk all right. to you later. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org/aict. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.